Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So, welcome to the podcast number four from Core Kinetic with myself, um, Ben Cormack. And this week, I am joined by the man, the legend, the illusion himself, Mr. Roger Kerry. How are you doing, Roger? Oh, great. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I wasn't a legend a minute ago when you just said I was a northerner. <laughs> that's that's stating a fact. Yeah, true. Midlandser, Midlandser. Oh, it's northerner to me, buddy, but yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, Rog, could you just, um, just let the viewers know a little bit about yourself and what you do, please? I am Roger Kerry. I'm a chartered physiotherapist and um, I work at the moment at the University of Nottingham mainly, as well as all the other stuff as well. Um, and the physio programs there, leading on some of the postgraduate stuff, background in musculoskeletal injury, orthopedic clinics, triage, that sort of stuff. Um, and also very much interested in bigger, bigger issues, public health issues, physical activity, um, and all the rest of it that we all should be interested in. Yeah. Absolutely. And we were we were destined to go and have a beer, weren't we, Rog? We were. And then this this virus came along and put paid to our plans. I was I was already I'd booked the airport parking ticket. I knew what seat I was going to sit in at the bar in the airport and everything. Yeah. See, so both myself and Roger were off to Denmark to speak at uh, it was a McKenzie conference, nonetheless. Gosh, it was. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been entirely sure why they asked me, but yeah, <laughs> well, I, I just went along with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was I was very much looking forward to having a few jars and uh, and catching up and and that Absolutely. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But Rog, I must say I'm a big fan of your work. I was reading, I've read lots of your papers. I was reading one just the other day, um, and I always think to myself. How Roger always hits the nail on the head of, of some of the questions that I'm really interested in. And I always think, God, you know, I wish I could have put it as eloquently as that. So thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, I mean, obviously all, all your stuff is great. But one of the things that I really enjoy reading about is kind of how we use and view the using evidence and research in clinical practice, because I think it's literally relevant to every person, you know, not just physio, but every person who works within within healthcare and, and wants to use kind of more empirical evidence-based stuff. Um, and how we do that, I think, is a really, really important thing. So that kind of, that's really what I wanted to talk about mm. um, and expand on. And, you know, we won't go too delving into the depths of philosophy. You're probably far too bright for my <laughs> philosophical blood on, on this stuff. But, um, you know, I'd really like to get your um, kind of more your opinions on it. And, 
you know, so how maybe we should look at using evidence in clinical practice, how maybe we can use that with the person standing in front of us. Because I think that's always one of those really big clinical challenges, isn't it, is, is applying this information that we can get on Twitter or, you know, PubMed or if you're being naughty on SciHub. <laughs> and um, oh, we didn't mention that. That didn't happen, Roger. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not going to edit that out. Um, and, and, you know, and then, then how we actually take that and use that with, with the person in front of us. So, look, just to kick it off, um, as I said, I'm going to keep it quite, you know, quite probably simplistic for your good self. But how do you uh, what, how do you see the role? And this is something that's quite discussed, isn't it? You know, we see lots of debates about this. But how do you see the role of, of using evidence uh, within clinical practice? How should we, I know it's a broad question? Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is, it, it's a broad and a big question. Uh, my, uh, this, so where are we now? Two, 2020 or whatever. I, it might help as a very brief brief bit of a journey for me. I mean, uh, probably like a lot of our listeners, I entered this profession at the when the old evidence-based movement um, movement was was just emerging and. So I think we all had a taste of practice, let's say pre-evidence or whatever, and now we're in this, uh, you know, tr truly deep in tr 20 odd years down the line, 30 years even of um, evidence-based practice. So how how do I see the use of it? Of course, it makes um, it's not just a political move, is it? It's not just a professional mandate that we we do this there is something more fundamental and scientific about it it, make, it makes absolute sense and it's logical that we should use the best information we can to inform what we do um there's no problem with that at all but so it's it's how it's used i mean this is the problem it's what what constitutes relevant evidence to that clinical situation and and how do you yeah. use it you know these these are the big questions and, um, you know, the, these are the sorts of things that I've been trying to sort of think about and work on for, for a long time. You know, lots of other people as as well, because it, there's a superficial answer to this. You can just say, well, you know, just just read some guidelines and do what the guidelines say or something like yeah. that. Uh, so that's one that's one use, you know, be very protocolized. And I know there's some good, pro you know, there are some strong proponents of a truly protocolized way of clinical practice and i suppose in the ideal world if you've got the ab an absolute true body of knowledge that ain't going to change and it totally reflects everything you do then maybe there is a world where where you could do that but i think we're probably about a million miles away from something like that yes so what do you do yeah, I, I think you, you kind of highlighted a good point there that, you know, and uh, there's this saying, isn't there, I think, you know, do we use evidence like a drunk uses a lamppost? You know, do we lean on it or do we use it to illuminate us? Um, uh, and I think that's quite good. Uh, I think the other thing that we have to ask ourselves is does does the evidence base fully, you know, because we have, let, let's take the guideline point that you brought up. You know, we know that clinicians don't use guidelines very well or don't use them very often, you know, in the research that happens with that. And, what, and why do you think that may, maybe that happens? Is it because although they are evidence informed, that evidence doesn't really guide us very well to, to actually implement them, perhaps? Yeah, I, th I think 
um, people just see or don't see the relevance of the guideline to their particular clinical encounter at that point in time. Um, now, there's, there's two ways to think about that. There's, there's you know, but both points of view there. There's one, well, maybe it isn't. Maybe your patient is so much more complex or doesn't doesn't look like the sort of pe people that are, uh, those guidelines speak to. But the other way is uh, from the, re you know, from the guideline developer's point of view, is more well you know you are in, you as a clinician are embedded in this particular type of behavior and clinical practice that you you've got it's ha it's habit to you how you think and how you practice so yeah. of course suddenly you know somebody some third party comes along and throws some guidelines at you and says do this that's that's asking a lot of you in terms of behavioral change challenging your own clinical practice challenging the way you think challenging what you think you know um so there's a there's a lot of dynamics in there i i don't necessarily pe think the profession or people within the profession think get up in the morning and actively think right i'm going to make a stance against evidence-based <laughs> practice today and not use, bastards not to use yeah. <laughs> I'll show. We'll, we'll burn them down. We'll burn nice down. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's been threatened a few times. I don't think there was maybe some movement. No, I'm joking. That's, that's not. That's not true. If nice hears this, there is no movement against you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know that 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 itself is quite complex, isn't it? But I, I I think there is that thing about this doesn't apply to to me or the patients I see. But I suppose, you know, they're not may, maybe that's because we do have these very, very general guidelines. But then we get do get people who are, you know, very not very general, if that makes sense. You know, they are a, a quite unique collection of different things going on, aren't there? And sometimes it is hard to reconcile those two things that, you know, they might tell me the guidelines might tell them which are evidence based or evidence informed or whatever you want to call it. They tell me to use education and exercise okay. and back pain. But yeah. what does that really mean? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, it just means that, doesn't it? It doesn't direct you, it doesn't tell you. And I suppose, you know, if you look at like the, you know, the low back pain gu guidelines, there is nothing desperately challenging there. It's just sort of saying, you know, do what we do as a profession. Talk to people, get them moving. If you need to tweak them a little bit with your hands or, you know, they respond to that for, fine. I don't rely on that. Um, so... I don't. I don't see a massive issue in in some of those um, some some points like that. But I suppose, and then if you take say, oh, don't do acupuncture for an example, you know, that's the sort of thing that you that can get a reaction because people will say things like, well, I've seen it work before, and um, and and then perhaps wrap that up in narratives about the way guidelines have been developed or the or the, the quality of the studies that have informed them and things like that um so it's probably those things of not to do that are, that are more contentious and then they become an excuse to sort of dismiss guidelines generally yeah yeah i, I see yeah absolutely that we yeah we we use exceptions don't we to sometimes break the rules if you like um, but, you know, perhaps they, as you said before, they're not really rules, are they? Just um, maybe that people don't kind of go for them, uh, perhaps for, for a number of different reasons. So something that I know you've always talked about, Rog, is kind of the idea of the N equals mm. one. Mm. Right. 
So um, how do you see taking this more kind of larger, um, you know, scientific evidence base that we've developed, um, you know, often not quite as uh, consistent as we like to think it is, um, the old kind of it works or it doesn't work, that kind of dichotomous view, which we know it isn't really like that at all. But how do we, you know, and again, it's a big, broad question, um, not not very discreet at all, I'm afraid. But how do we start to go about reconciling some of that uh, kind of evidence base that we have and, and, and are meant to use as evidence based clinicians? And then, you know, having to use that in a messy, complex clinical environment with this person standing in front of us, you know, what are you, so I know there isn't an answer per se, but what would be some of your thoughts or considerations around this? Because I know it's something that a lot of people struggle with. It, it is, and you know, that's absolutely central to, to my uh, my interest in this, in this whole area. How do you reconcile those things together? Um, and it could, because we, we, we know that it isn't just a matter of applying the population data to a patient, and and actually, you know, not not even the most um, extremist of epidemiologists would would even suggest that. Anyway, what population data is is a body of of knowledge that that um, is usable in certain contexts and can and can generally guide guide some way, but. <sighs> The, the balance we've got to get, and like you say, there's no there's no dichotomy. Dichotomy is it, it is a it is a complex um, interaction we're talking about. And that interaction is between yourself and your past history, yourself and the evidence, yourself and your patient, the patient and their history, beliefs. You know, there's all this stuff going on. Now, what what we don't want to get into, and this is this is something that I relish any chance like this to sort of try and clear up a bit. This whole n equals one thing. What what is absolutely not an option here is to sort of drift off back into history somehow to a period of of what you know in the literature that people refer to as cl clinical freedom. And this is the same <laughs> in med med medicine as well as health. You know, do what you want yeah. or do. Yeah acquiesce to the patient patient asks for ultrasound well let's do some patient-centered medicine then and give them ultrasound that's yeah. not that's not what it is at all no absolutely um you know so something like population data might give us some clues about the general therapeutic effectiveness of say ultrasound and so say well you know there really isn't the sort of um, patterns in the population that you'd want to see to support the use of that now the patient wants ultrasound so person-centered medicine is then about establishing well you know what what what's what's going on with the beliefs and, and the thoughts and the attitudes of the patient and how can we sort of um you know me mediate all that sort of conversation there's, there's that that bit to it but the other thing is i mean we talk about using the evidence or applying the evidence to your patient but the other thing is we need to and and again this isn't i'm not sort of cloaking up some some woolly voodoo thing in the background here um but but we do need to think of the the patient the person the human and the interaction with the clinician as also a source of evidence as well so when we say apply yep. the evidence also the evidence is there now the important thing is what what we're not talking about there is 
Well, we are, we are talking about this. You could say something like there's evidence of causation there within that single uh, clinical encounter, because what you're trying to do as a clinician through your narrative based medicine, evidence informed is trying to work out the causally important things about that patient that may may predict whether they respond to a treatment intervention or not. But the important thing is not to think of um, and this is the mistake that people make I think and this is what I also get accused of supporting and I'm not at all of people saying um, they think they know what works because they've seen it happen before in their own clinical experience yeah. you know and that's the whole sort of thing that the evidence-based medicine movement try to um, you know improve upon that your your own personal experience isn't a reliable source of evidence of predicting future responses to treatments but your your past clinical experience is rich with all sorts of other things you know yeah. the way you communicate yeah. with people the, the the recognition of something you know some something odd some some red flag or something like that you know all those things but you can have what what I think, and this is what we've been working on in projects like Cause Health and, you know, other people um, have been working on the, you, you, the campaign for real evidence based medicine and all that stuff, that the there is scientific methods at play in our clinical encounter, which are comparably robust to the scientific methods that are used in a lab or in a randomized control trial. And in some ways, it's old school clinical reasoning, careful thinking, being very judicious, very, very, very thorough about what you're thinking and what you're listening to and what you're interpreting, checking with the patient, testing hypothesis with the patient and coming at, coming out through, you know, this scientific process on the shop floor. And yeah. I don't mean trial and error. I don't mean, oh, let's try a few modes and see if that works. You know, it's deeper than that, and it's it's embedded in the narrative of the patient. You know that that scientific thought process. So, you know, I I I think the the value of the evidence we get from the clinical encounter is at least as valuable as the evidence we get from a systematic review of high quality randomised controlled trials. And if all those things start to match, then boom, that's a perfect sweet spot. Yeah, I mean, I. I I always think that we have to see it as, and I think you pointed that out in what you just said, it's a game of probabilities. So you need to know if there is a probable likelihood of something over a bigger group of people or a different group of people having a potential effect on the patient. But when you actually apply that, is it, and it, it is an experiment within itself, isn't it? But one that's potentially guided by a probability from another set of data. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I, I think we have to be comfortable with that, don't we? We have to be comfortable that even research data is highly open to interpretation. And, and then there's statistical methods within there or statistical um, variables that kind of display things like uncertainty and mm -hmm. variation in sampling. And I don't know if we always appreciate that enough, do we? So how here's a question then, Rog. How much do you think we need, if we're going to be evidence informed or evidence based or whatever other terminology you, you want to use, how much do we have to know about the processes behind 
how we go about doing research and methods and statistics and things like that, because I think that often tells its own story. Well, I've, I've always I've said this for years, decades even. You, you know, when I when I did A level biology um, in the good old days, Roger. In, in the good old days, <laughs> when you could get away with all sorts of things, um, um, we had this teacher who was some sort of supply teacher or something. I think he was he was over on some continent from Africa. And he was a really nice bloke, and um, I don't know why. I have no idea the context of this situation. But he said to me one day, he said the most important person you're ever going to um, need to know about is a is a guy called Karl Popper, and I never heard of this yeah. guy. So. I went away and looked at him and he's this philosopher of science and that, that's really where I got interested in philosophy of science. And um, he said in the in the professions, in the, in the sort of, you know, scientific professions, healthcare professions, um, he said nobody's going to get anywhere unless they've got a thorough understanding of, of the philosophy of science and, and, and scientific method. And um, and over the years, I thought I thought about that a lot. And there are examples in the world. I mean, some Scandinavian countries do this. I don't know if they still do. I'm, I'm sure they do. But every every degree is underpinned by a foundation year in philosophy of science. And to me, that makes perfect sense because I just don't get how you can interpret data or understand the meaning of data unless you've got some grounding in the understanding of of, of some elements of, the, of philosophy of science. And I don't, I don't mean to say that to sort of uh, disenfranchise people and think, oh, you know, so you saying I'm not good enough to know what an RCT is and stuff like that. It's not it's not a problem of the people. It's not our fault. It's not. Our problem. I'm just saying this. This is potentially one way forward. And especially so as we are pushed into an era of, of true evidence-based healthcare, we really need to understand something about, um, and I, I'm not just talking about how does an RCT work and what makes yeah. a good RCT and what's risk of bias in this particular RCT. It's more foundational than that, you know, understanding how the world works, what is truth, what what value do, it, do you attach to something that you've decided you're going to call truth? And uh, how does that play out? In the like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a we've got potential there to to really improve how we think as a profession um, by understanding the, it's really the way the world works and what constitutes best best knowledge and and, and best explanations. Um, I mean, we probably see that these days to some degree, don't we, that we pick up. It's probably easier now in some ways to pick up what we think is knowledge or what we think is truth, isn't it? Of so many different ways, you know, go on Twitter, oh, for example. Yeah. Right? But what I mean is you could probably pick up a whole bunch of different opinions about what is truth quite quickly. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you've got, um, I mean, there's a bit of a paradox here if a philosopher is making a stance to say well we actually we know what truth is you have all these opinions and and so so forth but we're the ones who actually know what truth is there's a bit of a, a, a problem there as well isn't it but but you know the, the quality assurance with with that is in is, is steeped in logic and 
the way humans rationalize things like arguments and and work things out and as um you're right you know in this area now fake news twitter facebook um the bmj which one of those are you going to believe and on what grounds are you going to believe it because once you've once you've decided whose opinion or whose knowledge you've got to believe, then you've got to establish, you know, and, and rationalise and justify to someone else why you believe that source of knowledge more than more than another. And that the excuse there shouldn't be because that's how we were we were taught on our physio program or whatever. You've got to genuinely understand and genuinely know, um, you know, those grounds for belief there. But I think you wrote a blog, didn't you, many years ago, you terrible blogger, you, Roger, <laughs> um, on, on, I'm not, as I recall, was the title, I'm not paid enough to think this deeply. Was that correct? It, it was. God, yeah, it was. Yeah, I can't, I can't deny that because no, that no, that's not fake news. But that's, um, but that's a really fair point in this situation, isn't it? It is. That sometimes, you know, to, to, to delve that deep into our very psyche and stare the evil bits of us in the face is quite difficult <laughs> to do, isn't it? it? It is on a day to day basis. If you, you know, if you take, you know, clinical reasoning as an example, if, if you were truly doing what, you know, Mark Jones, um, Joy Higgs and all those yeah. people who, who sort of wrote extensively about clinical reasoning, and, you know, and, and people now, you know, Peter Sullivan's models and everything else. If you were truly doing that all day, every day with your patients, by Wednesday afternoon, you'd be knackered and you'd want you'd want a job in a flower shop or something like Monday that. Morning, I think, right, James, <laughs> yeah. invite to go that deeply. And I think that's why things like pattern recognition are probably quite important for human beings, aren't they? Because to throw that much thought into everything probably does take and all the other human connection you have to make. It makes it really difficult. It does, and you know, pattern recognition is a is a traditional logical shortcut to get from point to that point without going through all those other, other things. So other things like that. But again, going back to that thing, if we had a, you, you know, if as young adults we'd had good thorough sort of uh, tr- training in in the in in science and and the philosophy of science. And that was just part of us, you know, and then we grew up and then we go and do our physiotherapy degree and it all makes sense. It Actually, the other end of it is doesn't need to be so exhausting because you naturally think and feel and behave in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different way that doesn't consume all your energy all the time. You can make these cognitive um, judgments and, and synthesize information much more efficiently because of because of the way you've been sort of educated and, and, and trained yeah think, it, it's a way of thinking yeah yeah and yeah and we're and i think what we're doing is trying to patch things up we're trying to think right we've had this certain level of education now we're in we're in a much more complex world than we thought we was but i'll tell you what let's do some clinical reasoning and uh, go on a quick course on evidence-based medicine and 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 that now do that now do that it's it's almost like too little too late or you know let's say just patching things up we haven't got that really robust uh history behind us in our sort of education well well, as i remember my stats classes both undergrad and postgrad i don't think that i ever you know i did lots of stats and i did lots of 
you know, working out how to do, you know, various statistical methods and using, you know, SPSS and all these different things. But I don't think I, I ever fundamentally we ever talked about why we might need to use this and what are some of the origins and, and these kind of things. It was very much about the methodology and the maths, things like contingency tables and all yeah. these other things. And it wasn't about the philosophy behind it, the thought processes behind it. And I think you make a great point about the kind of maybe the value that that would probably bring and the cohesion that that would probably bring to the process. Mm. It drives me mad. I mean, I, I, I despise the way that statistics and research methods or whatever you, these places call them are, are, are delivered. And, you know, in, in, in I suppose, again, in this sort of ideal world, which will never be, where all truth is known and it will never change, something like a contingency table would be perfect because it just tells you what the world is. But it, like we keep saying, it's not like that. Um, but again, it's this veneer, this superficial thin layer of yeah. oh, let's t- let's go through some research methods and stats, and then you do your project, and then you you've shown you can do. It. You know, it's nonsense. There's a fundamental lack of understanding of the scientific process that sits behind all that, and and people come out and they, they think, yeah, I've done some research, and and then you know from that point on, that's their conception of what research is, and they might go down the research route and be very good at developing. Uh, uh, you know and getting a big trial unit and that and that's all great and they're they're going through these careers but even so and some people won't like this at all at the (laughs) high end of all this you know the high end researchers I don't think a lot of what our clinical research is adheres to scientific methods that much at all it's research science and research aren't necessarily the same things at all and we've we've got the potential yeah. to be led, and and we're establishing this knowledge we, base, which is drifting you know, the, the, further, the, and further from the truth. No, I, I I I very much agree. So, do you think sometimes that potentially we kind of you know a, a push towards this more positivist kind of perception sometimes maybe dehumanize do you think we stop we're trying to rehumanize therapy sometimes when when it's been you know maybe so i see a real push recently towards you know person-centered care and all these other things do you think maybe it went it's gone through a period of dehumanization with this with a more empirical kind of approach uh, yeah i think it has and, and again i'm not the only one to say that you know this is this is this this all this conversation is going off in medicine uh, perhaps less so in nursing but but um but uh, you know if you take if you go back to the early 90s 92 when gordon guy and dave Sacker and all that lot created this model their intentions weren't if you read what they were saying in those original papers their intentions were never for what happened through the 90s and early noughties and now, which is that dehumanising and and uh, replacing people with data. Um, yeah. And now we're coming out. Replacing statistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and now we, I mean, the beautiful thing of history is that, <laughs> you know, you can, you can look back at that. So we can look back at the last 30 years and say, hold on a minute, 
um, this wasn't what it was meant meant to really be. And let's raise it. And I think that's where we are now. We're at that, that, that time of reconceptualising what evidence based healthcare should look like in a, in a human, you know, in a human um, discipline. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've really kind of noticed recently, that there seemed to be a very hardcore kind of push towards the data and the RCT. And then there seems to be this more recent push. And again, I'm probably, you know, late to the party, but, you know, much more of a push of going back to, you know, maybe appreciating and understanding that individual. And it really is that reconciling, isn't it? And you you yeah. wrote a paper on that a couple of years ago, three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I can't remember the title of the paper, Rog, even though I, I read it again the other day. And I, do you know what? I even highlighted stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow or pink? Yellow, Rog, just for you. I don't know. I, I, I did consider this. I did think, is Rog more pink or more yellow? I did settle on, I did settle on, on, on more yellow. Um, so kind of, you know, and again, this is a crappy brawl question. Where, where do you see, where, where do you see, uh, a really good move forward here you know how how are we going to start to solve out some of these problems what would be you know if but if roger was to stand up on the diocese and you know pontificate about the future what would be where where are we going to go well first thing again it is the future not the past like we said before we're not this isn't about thinking oh EBN, we made a mistake with ebn so let, let's go back you're right yeah, it's yeah. The, what's the future like and the future is quite, it's an evolution is it yeah and it uh and you know i think a fairly big evolution as well because what we're trying to say is um <clears throat> this prioritization of certain research methods for example is fine it tells you what particular methods are best at um you know reducing risk of bias and that tells us something but it doesn't necessarily tell us tell us everything so the future is is not nothing i don't think it's anything special or sophisticated we need to get better at looking at all different sources of evidence and trying to trying to match them all together so we talk about this evidential pluralism uh, so if you've got rcts if you've got laboratory studies if you've got qualitative studies if you've got case histories if you've got clinical experiences and if you've got a patient story and they're all pointing in the same direction then we can start to say right now we're establishing something that maybe looks like a a, a, a truth in a, in a positive positive um terminology yeah um but what we do now is say, well, actually, the laboratory study says that, uh, case theory says that, uh, RCTs say that, but RCTs trump the other stuff. Um, uh, based on based on this sort of dubious theory of risk of bias, we've got to ask what what your what what context that is in. But what we should be saying is, hold on, something's everything's not pointing in the same direction. So there's something fundamentally sort of wrong here. So let's let's re-examine what's happening there. Why did that RCT say X and that said Y? What what's the reason for that? And I'm not saying we do, you know, each clinician sits around and does this. But in <laughs> our in our psyche, in our education and in, in our models of evidence-based healthcare, this really should be more how it looks at and trying to work out ways of contextualizing population data yeah. within the within the individual context what we do now is sort of try and look for the individual in a population study um 
and I know this sounds a bit nuanced, but what we need to do is is look at what that population study can offer to to our individual patient in in a midst of all the other sources of evidence within that clinical encounter as, as well. So it's something to do. I think the future is something to do with what we would call evidential pluralism. Or oh, your fancy and your rog. Evidential pluralism. Go on. <laughs> Well, as I say, just uh, numerous methods, right? Yeah, all saying the same thing, and yeah. us questioning rather than dismissing a lesser method because a higher method says otherwise. Think about oh, and what's going on there. If we truly, if we truly, uh, you know, want to be scientific, uh, we need to look at different scientific methods and what, and what they say about the world and try and sort of m m map all that up. And there are ways of doing that. We don't need to get, you know, the future The future will be based around that. Yeah, and I, I think you made the great point at the beginning. All this is a lot easier if we embed this thought at the beginning. Exactly. You know, it doesn't come as this kind of, if we actually, you know, rather than saying, well, it's a meta-analysis or it's a systematic yeah. review, you know, and these kind of arbitrary, well, even a kind of, you know, a p-value is a dichotomous arbitrary number, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, so what I have enjoyed recently is the kind of rise of more qualitative research. And I know it's not perfect, but I, I, I think that, you know, you make a great point as well as well about the plurality, that if we can see if the kind of population level uh, numerical uh, quantitative stuff mm -hmm. actually fits with more of the individual mm -hmm. qualitative stuff, mm -hmm. I think we're going to start to get a much more rounded picture of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You so, know, that, sorry, Rod, you go. I know. Just say, you know, I agree with that. That tells us more about the human um, than than um, robust quantitative methods. Again, not to dismiss those methods. All these methods are valuable, but we need to sort of reconceptualize what value they have for us as clinicians. Yeah, I, I get the sense, Rog, you may have been a, a accused of things in the past. Yeah. Uh, I think that when we critique things, and I think I've had these kind of things thrown at me, you know, when we critique things, suddenly we're the enemy of that thing. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I think that's a problem within itself uh, for, you know, in fact, in this in this in this world of trying to reduce bias, you know, suddenly actually we create tribes yeah. of bias, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and what I find so interesting is if we critique biomechanics, you dislike biomechanics. You don't see yeah. a worth in biomechanics. So we do have this real dichotomous thinking, don't we? Um, is that just a human thing? I, well, I, I think it is in some ways because it helps us. Under, it helps us. Um, if it gives us more confidence, if it if it, if something can be one thing or another, I'm happy with that. But I do think, and you, you know, like like you and others have, have always said it. I think the profession is probably unusually dichotomous like that. You know, it it really is either all or nothing. You're either Maitland or you're Mackenzie. Yeah. You're either Stuart McGill or you're Paul Lodges or whatever. You know, uh, you, oh, you're having to go RCTs. That means you don't like science. Yes, uh, exactly. You know, it, it's, you're a witch doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, God, it drives you insane. And yeah. I, I don't know how, but we've got to navigate our way out of that out of that way of thinking as a profession. And again, the only way to do that is 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 change something educationally. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, you know, and look, I, I think that's something that I've really picked up from you today is that, 
you know, all MSK professions would probably benefit from, you know, and actually physio is quite a long way, uh, you know, in advance of some professions in that sense. But, you know, I, I would also think that we need to be teaching people about what fundamentally these things are and what they mean, not just is this probability as big as it's meant to be or or, or what have you, or, you know, is the, are these factors important or are they not important is this mm. piece of evidence more important um, than this piece of evidence are you are you being able to do that at nottingham is that uh, uh, something that's been afforded to you no 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 not really i mean we try all the time uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i mean with the postgrad you can have these conversations and you can the thing is with the education curriculum no criticism of any education curriculum because it, it is largely dictated so you've got to get in at an organisational level beyond beyond the, the particular universities, you know, and, and sort of um, go from there. Because it's hard, you know, it's hard for a lecturing team to, to change things too much oh, because there's hugely. certain things that have got to be met. Yeah. The problem is those things that have got to be met are obviously often ridiculous. Um, so, you know, again, it's that fundamental uh, change but these things are so you know they're they're everywhere these systemic factors mm. aren't they you know yeah. we see that in our lives and and our health health in general these bigger you know public health systems and you know public health factors determine our health and our lives much more than we ever think that they do do we we have an illusion sometimes of, mm. of individuality and, and these kind of things but rog it's been absolutely fantastic to, to to have a chat, mate. I must say, I'm a, always a big Rog fan. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, you know, these are topics that really, um, really interest me. And I think that we would all uh, do a lot better if we fundamentally actually knew what we were talking about. <laughs> that might what, what I mean by that is not like, do you know what are good stats and what are bad stats, but things that are driving our reasoning, are driving our biases, and actually, what are we trying to do with this whole science thing, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for chatting, Ben. It's been awesome. So I, well, look, I was hoping it would be over a beer, Rog. I know. I know. Well, I've, I have had some coffee while we've been talking, but it ain't the same. It, it, I, I mean, you, you are northern, so did you put a little bit of something in there? It is past one o'clock. Uh, yeah, I did. I put, yeah, I put a pie in there. Yeah, oh, you put a pie. Now, that is supremely northern, isn't it? <laughs> And you lot have gravy, don't you? Because down south, we have our pie with liquor. You know what liquor is? Well, I know the. Well, I would say liquor is. What's what's a southern liquor? So it's you have pie and what it was, it's the green, the green sauce. So when you go into London and you have pie and mash, you have it with a green parsley sauce, which was the eel juice from years ago. And that's liquor. That's what you call liquor, isn't it? Yeah, parsley sauce. You have, so you have pie mash and liquor. This has been. This is a fundamental day of learning for you, isn't it? This has changed my world. This has yeah. changed your world. Now, yeah, yeah. So obviously there is liquor, hard liquor, Rog. Good <laughs> liquor. Yeah, you know the, the kind of stuff that's good to have on a Sunday afternoon. But then there is this other liquor that we have with you know just uh food style liquor but you northern lads you have your gravy don't you yeah yeah just just gravy and ale and ale i like gravy and that that is their only subsistence <laughs> there is no other other food up north 
But Rog, look, uh, apart from we've really, um, you know, actually reinforced some racial stereotypes or cultural stereotypes, which I think is supremely important. <laughs> uh, we're building walls, not pulling them down. We are. Uh, we yeah. are. But we do it with a smile on our face. So, look, massive pleasure for me um, to have a chat, Rog, and I really look forward to catching up and having a beer pretty soon. Can't wait, Ben. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.